This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the well-planned and completely predictable build-up to war with Iran from the Republican neocons and theocrats who've wanted this war for decades. Clips today come from Intercepted, Democracy Now!, The Real News, Unauthorized Disclosure, Citations Needed, People's Republic, The Hartman Report, Stay Tuned, and The Inquiry. This is the Maddox, one of the two destroyers that were attacked while patrolling international waters in the Gulf of Tonkin near North Vietnam. Fifty-five years ago, in 1964, the 7th Fleet sent two lethal destroyers to the waters around North Vietnam. At this point in the war, the U.S. had not yet deployed its masses of ground troops. There were U.S. personnel on the ground fighting covertly and directing South Vietnamese forces and operations, but they were categorized simply as advisors. The all-out war that powerful hawks and warmongers had been agitating for for years had not yet materialized. They needed an inciting incident, a justification. In late July 1964, South Vietnamese forces began attacking North Vietnamese bridges, communication posts, and other sites along North Vietnam's coastal waters and islands in what was known as the Gulf of Tonkin. On August 2nd, the U.S. warships off the coast reportedly detected North Vietnamese ships responding to the attacks and claimed that they thought that those vessels were actually coming to attack the U.S. ships. There are conflicting versions of what happened next, but declassified NSA documents reveal that the USS Maddox fired warning shots at the North Vietnamese ships. A firefight broke out, with the U.S. launching nearly 300 projectiles at the North Vietnamese. In all, at least four of North Vietnam's sailors were killed, others were wounded, ships were destroyed. The USS Maddox, we now know, suffered a single bullet hole of damage. The lights burned all night in the White House as President Johnson conferred with his advisors and he went before the nation to report on the crisis. Back in Washington, D.C., the Johnson administration saw opportunity. Here is then-Defense Secretary Robert McNamara calling Lyndon Johnson on the phone to discuss the alleged attacks on U.S. warships. President, we just had word by telephone from Admiral Sharp that the... Uh, Destroyer is under torpedo attack. I think I might get uh, Dean Rusk and Mac Bundy have them come over here and we'll go over these retaliatory actions and then we ought to. I sure think you'll agree with that, yeah. And uh, I've got a category here. I'll call it to them. Now, where are these torpedoes coming from? Well, we don't know. Presumably from these unidentified craft that I mentioned to you a moment ago. On the evening of August 4th, 1964, Lyndon Johnson broke into regularly scheduled TV programming. He told the American people, that two U.S. warships, the Maddox and the Turner Joy, had been attacked, unprovoked, in international waters off the coast of Vietnam. My fellow Americans, as President and Commander-in-Chief, it is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me 
to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. The initial attack on the destroyer Maddox on August 2nd was repeated today by a number of hostile vessels attacking two U.S. destroyers with torpedoes. At the time President Johnson delivered that speech, U.S. intelligence had not yet confirmed any second incident with North Vietnamese ships. But Johnson left that out of his speech. Instead, he presented these alleged attacks as established fact. The determination of all Americans to carry out our full commitment to the people and to the government of South Vietnam will be redoubled by this outrage. Yet our response for the present will be limited and fitting. We Americans know, although others appear to forget, the risk of spreading conflict. We still seek no wider war. But the whole thing was a false flag, a fabricated crisis. History is now clear. The first so-called attack was actually instigated by the U.S. against North Vietnamese vessels that were responding to attacks by South Vietnamese forces. And the second one? Well, it really seems to have never happened. You're pretty sure there was a torpedo attack, though. Oh, no doubt about that, I think. No doubt about that. Decades later, Robert McNamara spoke about this in the film The Fog of War, directed by Errol Morris. It was just confusion. And events afterwards showed that our judgment that we'd been attacked that day was wrong. It didn't happen. This incendiary fraud about two unprovoked attacks on U.S. warships was swiftly weaponized by the Johnson administration on Capitol Hill. Lyndon Johnson ordered retaliation strikes against North Vietnam. The U.S. sorties were launched for one purpose— as a warning to the communists that unprovoked attacks will bring prompt response. Shortly after Johnson's speech, the Congress passed a joint resolution known as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. It gave Lyndon Johnson sweeping powers to wage war in the name of protecting U.S. allies. Johnson never asked Congress to declare war. Instead, he used the incident to cut himself loose from congressional control. He requested a resolution that would give him the power to expand the war without further authorization. After deliberating just 40 minutes, the House approved the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. Not a single representative voted no. Over in the Senate, there were just two dissenting votes. On August 7th, Johnson signed the resolution. The language was broad, the authority sweeping. Johnson was heard to say, it's like grandmother's nightshirt. It covers everything. It was the Gulf of Tonkin incident that escalated the mass slaughter in Vietnam by the U.S. The scorched earth, the burning of villages, the rapes, the torture, the deaths of upwards of 3 million Vietnamese and some 58,000 American GIs. And it was all based on lies, lethal lies. History's verdict seems clear. The purpose of deploying the U.S. warships to Vietnam was to provoke an attack perhaps to even encourage it. 
Before this new Southeast Asia crisis, the United States had announced that 5,000 more military advisors were being sent to South Vietnam to bring our forces there to 21,000. Now this number will be increased even further. At sea, on land, and in the air, the awesome United States military machine is mounting a force that can face up to any threat. Today, right now, we face some grave historical parallels with the Trump administration and Iran. It is obvious that for some in the White House, Iran is a war seeking a justification. It all feels eerily reminiscent of the Gulf of Tonkin and the Vietnam War. It is a solemn responsibility to have to order even limited military action by forces whose overall strength is as vast and as awesome as those of the United States of America. But it is my considered conviction, shared throughout your government, that firmness in the right is indispensable today for peace. Last month, we discussed an attack on four tankers in the Strait of Hormuz that the U.S. and its allies in the region claimed Iran was behind, though the administration failed to produce any actual evidence. And then, like deja vu, there was another attack last week. Once again, Iran was blamed. This is only the latest in a series of attacks instigated by the Islamic Republic of Iran and its surrogates against American and allied interests. On Monday, the Pentagon released photos that it claims implicate Iran and announced that it's sending another 1,000 troops to the Middle East for, quote, defensive purposes. Newsweek, citing a Pentagon official, reported that, quote, If anything is likely to happen involving the preliminary Iran options, it would involve a heavy guided missile strike campaign in an attempt to lead Tehran to the negotiation table with Washington. And the White House has had help in pushing its case from a top Democrat. I'm talking about Representative Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee. He's one of the most visible, always-on-cable-news Democrats who is constantly telling us not to trust anything this administration says. And yet, here is Schiff out there standing for Trump on Iran. There's no question that Iran is behind the attacks. I think the evidence is very strong and compelling. In fact, I think this was a Class A screw-up by Iran uh, to insert a mine on the ship. It didn't detonate. They had to go back and retrieve it. I can imagine there are some uh, Iranian heads rolling uh, for that uh, botched operation. The Trump administration has imposed a new round of sanctions on Iran, targeting several prominent Iranians, including Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Iran's top diplomat, Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif. President Trump announced the sanctions Monday. These measures represent a strong and proportionate response to Iran's increasingly provocative actions. We will continue to increase pressure on Tehran until the regime abandons its dangerous activities and aspirations, including the pursuit of nuclear weapons, increased enrichment of uranium, development of ballistic missiles, engagement in and support for terrorism, fueling of foreign conflicts, and belligerent acts directed against the United States and its allies. 
Iran said the move, quote, permanently closed the path to diplomacy between Iran and the United States. Earlier today, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani dismissed the sanctions as outrageous and idiotic and called the White House, quote, mentally retarded, unquote. The latest tension comes after the downing of a U.S. drone by Iran on Thursday. Iran maintains the spy drone had entered its airspace, while the U.S. claims the drone was in international waters. The U.S. military prepared to directly attack Iran in retaliation Thursday night, but Trump reportedly called off the bombing at the last minute. U.S. Cyber Command did respond by conducting online attacks against an Iranian intelligence group with ties to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. This comes as National Security Advisor John Bolton is in Jerusalem meeting with national security advisors from Russia and Israel. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has traveled to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in an attempt to build what the Trump administration is describing as a global coalition against Iran. Tension between the U.S. and Iran has been growing ever since President Trump unilaterally pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal last year. Since then, the United States has repeatedly imposed Imposed increasingly harsh sanctions on Iran, even though Iran has remained in compliance with the pact. Joining us now is the U.S.-Iranian um, author and analyst, Trita Parsi. He's the former president of the National Iranian-American Council, the group he founded. His most recent book is titled Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. His latest piece for The New Republic is headlined, Could Obama's Iran Playbook Save Trump from War? Trita, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you, you respond to the latest, the newly imposed sanctions on Iran? Well, if the Trump administration or President Trump himself actually wants diplomacy, then it is very difficult to see how this latest measure makes any sense whatsoever. This is not adding any particular economic pressure on Iran. In fact, already roughly 80 to 90 percent of Iran's economy is under sanctions from the United States. So there's really not that much left to sanction. I think what has happened here is that Donald Trump has been conned. Uh, he has adopted a policy of maximum pressure, which I think he may have thought was a good negotiating strategy. It's somewhat similar to what he did with North Korea. But the people who have been pushing this uh, policy onto Trump do not have diplomacy in mind. In fact, they know very well that this strategy makes diplomacy very unlikely. In fact, it's designed to make diplomacy unlikely while making war with Iran extremely likely. And I think we saw a very good piece of evidence of that last Thursday, because when push came to shove and Pompeo and Bolton had to choose between counseling restraint and counseling war, they counseled war. Trump's problem, though, is that while he has uh, shown some uh, uh, indication of not wanting to go to war. He has not uh, connected the dots of realizing that the reason why he's constantly on verge of war with Iran is precisely because of this maximum pressure strategy that he's adopted and that he's now taking to new levels by actually sanctioning the diplomats that he's supposed to be negotiating with.
Hours after President Trump imposed a new wave of sanctions Monday, the Iranian foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, tweeted, Real Donald Trump is 100 percent right that the U.S. military has no business in the Persian Gulf. Removal of its forces is fully in line with interests of U.S. and the world. But it's now clear that the B team is not concerned with U.S. interests. They despise diplomacy and thirst for war, the Iranian foreign minister said. Um, Trita, if you can talk about who the B team is, because as it goes to exactly what's happening right now with uh, Pompeo, the secretary of state headed to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and Bolton right now in Israel with Russia uh, and Israel. So the B team is something that uh, Zarif coined a couple of months ago, and I think what he's referring to, the, the individuals that he's included in that concept is Bibi Netanyahu, MBZ, which is the crown prince of UAE, MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, and Bolton. And um, what he's referring to there is that from the Israeli side, from the Saudi side, from the UAE side, there has been a push to get the United States to confront Iran or go to war with Iran for more than 10, 15 years. We saw from the WikiLeaks uh, documents that MBZ had been uh, advocating the United States to bomb Iran for quite some time. The former king of Saudi Arabia uh, was telling the United States to cut off the head of the snake. Uh, we saw that the former secretary of defense, while he was secretary of defense, was meeting with his French counterpart and said that the Saudis want to take, uh, want to fight the Americans to the last, sorry, fight the Iranians to the last American. So we have a situation in which these countries believe that if the United States were to go to war with Iran, it would restore the balance of power that existed in the Middle East prior to 2003. And that's what they're looking for. They want to live under this American protectorate and have the United States be uh, a strong military hegemon in the Middle East. What is fascinating with all of this is that Trump himself seems to strongly disagree with that notion, yet he goes along with their recommendations, because the tweet that he had shot off yesterday pointed out that the United States actually is not buying oil from the Persian Gulf, yet it is paying all of the costs of protecting the sea lanes there, and that it should be protected by other countries, and they should be uh, sharing uh, the burden, uh, the cost of that protection. Uh, and this is what I think Zarif was re referring to when he said that the United States doesn't have an interest in remaining uh, such a military presence in the Persian Gulf. But this is the crux of the problem. Not only is Trump's administration in conflict with itself, Trump himself does not seem to have um, an ability to hold one opinion at the same time for a longer period of time. Um, he constantly contradicts himself, and it makes it very difficult for any side to figure out how do you actually negotiate with a Trump administration if negotiations even uh, are an option. This is uh, President Trump speaking to NBC's Chuck Todd um, uh, when, after Todd asked Trump whether he felt he was being pushed into military action by his advisors. I have two groups of people. I have doves and I have hawks. Yeah, you have some serious I have hawks. some hawks. Oh, yeah, John Bolton is absolutely a hawk. It's up to him. He'd take on the whole world at one time, okay? But that doesn't matter, because I want both sides. So, can you respond to this, Trita Parsi? I don't know who the doves are. Uh, it's one thing to say that he has hawks. He certainly has hawks. But who are the doves? 
And if he actually is interested in diplomacy, who are the advisors on his team that at any point in their life actually have supported diplomacy, who have advocated for diplomacy, and who have any experience in how to actually conduct diplomacy with a country like Iran? He has surrounded himself entirely with people who have made a career out of making diplomacy, particularly with Iran, an impossibility, and who have at every turn advocated for military action. So the idea that he has two sides in his administration seems rather strange because who are the doves? Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and you probably don't think about your socks all that often. Maybe you do, no judgment, but if you don't, then maybe it's because you don't think there's that much to think about. Whereas I've been a convert to Bombas socks for years, and I genuinely still appreciate each pair for their style and comfort when I put them on each day. Just as you'd expect, they have lots of fancy features like super soft natural cotton, arch support, seamless toe, a cushioned footbed, the works, plus fun styling and colors to choose from. But I think the thing that'll really put you over the top is their mission, which goes far beyond selling socks. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell great socks to customers and give away great socks to those in need, one for one. To take advantage of our special offer, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. Iran announced on Monday that it would soon violate the 2015 nuclear agreement that it signed with the U.S., Russia, China, Germany, France, the U.K., and the European Union. A spokesperson for Iran's Atomic Energy Organization said that within days, Iran will have stockpiled more enriched uranium from its nuclear power plants than is allowed under the agreement, which is known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Here's what Iran's spokesperson had to say. Today, the countdown to having more than 300 kilograms of enriched uranium reserves has started. In 10 days, in other words, on June 27th, we will reach this target. Also, Iran's spokesperson went on to say that Iran might enrich the uranium to higher degrees of purity than is allowed under the JCPOA. The spokesperson also said that Iran will not violate the treaty if Britain, France, Germany, and the full European Union follow through on promises to find ways for Iran to circumvent U.S. economic sanctions. The Trump administration had reimposed sanctions against Iran last year, arguing that the JCPOA should be renegotiated and made much tougher on Iran, even though all parties agree that Iran has not violated the terms of the agreement. Meanwhile, sanctions against Iran have, are having a serious effect on Iran's economy, especially on its ability to export oil and to import life-saving medicines. Joining me now to discuss this latest development in the confrontation between the U.S. and Iran is Colonel Larry Wilkerson. He's a former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, and now he's distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. Thanks for joining us again, Larry. Good to be with you. 
So this announcement about exceeding the JCPOA uranium stockpile limit comes in the midst of ever-increasing tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And last week, you know, uh, the U.S. accused Iran of launching an attack on two oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz, uh, through which 20% of the world's oil supply flows. Given this context, where do you see this conflict between the U.S. and Iran heading now with this most recent announcement about exceeding or violating the JCPOA? I think we're looking at a tit-for-tat game here now. Um, Iran earlier had said that it would do things in contravention of the JCPOA if it were provoked. And I don't see how anyone looking at the situation could say that Iran has not been provoked and majorly so. It was particularly looking at if the sanctions were closed down on oil sales, and that's what would cause them to revisit their adherence to the JCPOA. Well, we've done that, and I don't, I don't see any reason for them not to do this now, given the provocation that we've given them. Um, what we've done, really, is start this game, as I said, of tit-for-tat, where we do this, and then Iran does that, and then so on and so forth. And in this case, Iran is just saying back to us, okay, if the Europeans aren't going to give us some relief on sanctions, and if you're going to continue to tighten your sanctions as much as possible, then we are going to do something that will make you think twice about that. And that is increase, or in this case, decrease our breakout time for developing a nuclear weapon. And that's essentially what we're talking about here, in the hopes that the United States will either relieve some pressure on the sanctions, or more likely, they're hoping, the Europeans will grow some courage, moral and political courage, and do what they said they would do, which is to go around U.S. sanctions, whether it's with a new financial transaction system or whatever, the Europeans need to grow up and uh, become uh, an independent body, if you will, and do what they said they would do if they want this nuclear agreement to stay alive. It's clearly what the Iranians uh, said they would do. Uh, One could expect them to do it. And ultimately, what will happen here, of course, is if none of this works, is Iran will gradually work its way towards what we prevented with the JCPOA, that is, a nuclear weapons program. And if I were they, I would be doing the same thing given the degree of provocation that the largest economic and financial power in the world with the most powerful military has placed upon them, even to the point of lying constantly about what Iran is doing. Let's just examine Michael Pompeo, the Secretary of State's words recently. There is no doubt, he said, August 2002, Dick Cheney, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Mike Pompeo doesn't even have the creativity to find a new expression, a new sentence structure. There is no doubt that Iran is responsible for bumpty, umpty, umpty, you know, all kinds of provocations, firing on tankers, the war in Yemen, and so forth and so on. So if I were Iran and I were looking, and there's no love in, in, in my heart for the Iranian leadership, but if I were Iran and I were thinking rationally, and I think they are, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. I'd be threatening us back with the most potent weapon they have, which is the potential to develop a nuclear weapon.
Gareth, could you comment on the ties? Uh, I'll give a specific example, but uh, the fact that there is a, there is a political difference between this administration and Obama's administration that is is significant, even though there's continuity within the military industrial complex or the national security establishment. Uh, we have seen that this administration has allowed figures, uh, particularly from think tanks like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, to populate its ranks. Um, I believe that's where John Bolton had uh, done a lot of his work. And then also they've added uh, Richard Goldberg, who has joined the National Security Council. Um, there's another official that came from, and this is a think tank that has been against the nuclear deal and has even gone so far as to agitate for the Trump administration to provoke unrest within Iran. So this is a much different sort of cast of characters that we have than with the Obama administration. That's absolutely right, of course. I mean, what, what the Trump administration represents, in effect, is a, uh, an alliance uh, with Israel against Iran that goes up to the brink of war, um, you know, from the beginning. But that, that's the starting point. Um, in other words, it, it, it is based on the whole idea that the United States will challenge Iran uh, in ways that are, uh, that, that are inevitably going to bring the United States towards the brink of war. And, uh, of course, the fact that you have two figures in Pompeo and Bolton, both of whom, for different reasons, are uh, committed to the, the point of view that, that the United States should entertain the idea of uh, being ready to go to war with Iran. Pompeo is, of course, a, a believer in the rapture. Um, and uh, people understand what that means. It, it's that, you know, uh, he he believes that uh, that there that a kind of uh, final end to history would take place in the Middle East uh, in in present day Israel uh, that would uh, uh, usher in the um, the entry of all saved souls into heaven and of course uh, Jews and and Islamic uh, 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 Muslims need not apply. Uh, but uh, that that is a firm belief, and he's talked about it publicly. Uh, Bolton, of course, has been aligned with uh, the most extreme elements in Israel for decades now, and has been rewarded for his service to Israel by the um, Zionist Organization of America, not just once but twice, um, and and has of course called for openly called for bombing Iran. Uh, for the last decade before he went into his present position as national security advisor. So, I mean, you could hardly imagine a more dangerous situation from that point of view. And, and you know, uh, the Obama administration, as weak as its policy was toward Iran and, and wrongheaded in the sense that it accepted uh, what I have documented in my book, Manufactured Crisis, uh, was a, uh, a false narrative that Iran had been trying to to get nuclear weapons, uh, had a policy of trying to uh, uh, procure nuclear weapons uh, in a covert nuclear weapons program. 
um, and based on that belief, um, negotiated a deal that was that that was um, implicitly accepting the idea that that Iran had to be pressured uh, to to uh, accept limits on its program, otherwise it was going to get nuclear weapons, and that's really. That has been so widely accepted now that, uh, that, let's face it, I mean, we face a situation where Iran now is going to um, move back to uh, enrichment levels that will trigger a new level of crisis between Iran and the United States. So, I mean, that is still the, the, the uh, problem that lurks it's no longer in the background. It's coming to the foreground now, but but it's going to be the center of uh, of a new level of crisis in the coming weeks because Iran will, in fact, make uh, uh, public statements uh, in in the very near future that that it is going to um, move back to a level of enrichment that will be viewed officially by the U.S. government as moving towards nuclear weapons. The Washington Post editorial's headline, May 14th, had the U.S. drifting toward war with Iran. Another example, as analyst Nima Shirazi quipped, of the world's superpower having no agency over its own imperialism. If we can still call things surreal, that would describe watching corporate media do the same things they did in the run-up to the Iraq War, things they later disavowed. The credulous repetition of administration claims about the supposed threat. The reliance for the interpretation of intelligence on officials with well-known records for manipulating intelligence. The stenographic reporting of troubling actions by the enemy state that later have to be walked back. A May 13th New York Times piece led with the statement that Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan had, quote, presented an updated military plan that envisioned sending as many as 120,000 troops to the Middle East should Iran attack American forces or accelerate work on nuclear weapons, administration officials said, close quote. As researcher Derek Davison reminds in a piece for Loblog, there is, as the Times has acknowledged on other occasions, no evidence that Iran is working on nuclear weapons at whatever pace. Later, the piece says, quote, Some senior American officials said the plans, even at a very preliminary stage, show how dangerous the threat from Iran has become. Others, who are urging a diplomatic resolution to the current tensions, said it amounts to a scare tactic to warn Iran against new aggressions. Close quote. So that's both sides. Iran is a dangerous threat, or it needs to be prevented from new aggressions, though the piece didn't name any previous ones. Indeed, the Times quotes and leaves unremarked the claim from a National Security Council spokesman that the president has been clear the United States does not seek military conflict with Iran. However, Iran's default option for 40 years has been violence. That's a frankly mind-boggling statement that surely warranted more than frictionless transmission. 
At the very end of the article, Davison reports, the Times throws in that National Security Advisor John Bolton has been pushing for war on Iran since the George W. Bush administration and has already asked the Pentagon to plan for a military strike at least once before these new supposed troubling moves from the country. But by that point, readers may have concluded that Iran is an emboldened rogue state, threatening the U.S. and pursuing nuclear weaponry. And the revelation that Bolton is trying to drum up a war with them might sound less unreasonable. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help you take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is a genuinely important thing, so it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray, covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best of the left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the code LEFT. Satellite images raise questions about Iran threat, experts say. Worries the Daily Beast. Iran and trading partners will find ways to skirt sanctions, analysts say, frets NPR. Iran uses proxies to punch above its weight in the Middle East, experts say, says NBC News. Fuel from Iran is financing Yemen's rebels, UN experts warn, writes the Associated Press. Democrats are raising alarms about Trump inching toward war with Iran, but experts are torn over what happens next, shrugs Business Insider. While Reuters reports, Iran can sink U.S. warships with secret weapons, military officials says. Fox tells us that Iran is building new crossing on Syria border that would let it smuggle in weapons, experts say. Experts say. Analysts say. Officials say. We hear these qualifiers constantly in the media. And when it comes to reporting on Iran... Experts, analysts, scholars, and fellows are consistently tapped to weigh in on the latest nefarious thing the, quote, Islamic Republic is up to now. But who are these so-called experts? What's their track record like, and what are their tangential, non-Iranian-related regional political goals? And what does a recent partnership between the Trump State Department and organizations like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies that targets peace activists on social media tell us about the broader problems of the so-called neutral experts? On today's episode, we're going to dig into some of the resumes of the media's favorite expertitions and break down how a revolving door of deeply ideological partisans use U.S. media to pawn themselves off as apolitical neutral arbiters. The Iran expertition industrial or in many ways imperial complex is something that Adam and I have been covering for quite some time. After all, in the media, if an expert says something, it signals that that's well informed, that they are, in fact an expert, that they have studied this topic and they know what they're talking about. Their comments, 
their opinions, their analysis must be worthwhile, must be reasonable. And the Iran expert industry is always booming. Reporters have their favorite experts and analysts on speed dials. It's hard to find an article on Iran sanctions, for instance, that doesn't quote someone from Foundation for Defense of Democracies, or the APAC spinoff Washington Institute for Near East Policy, or the Institute for Science and International Security. The names Mark Dubowitz, Ray Takia, and David Albright are ubiquitous in our media, peddling alarmist fantasies about mad mullahs and weapons programs that don't exist, all under the cover of expertise. So let's start off by discussing the primary group we'll be talking about today, which is the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which we have touched on before. You can't really talk about, quote unquote, Middle East policy, specifically Iran, without really talking about Foundation for Defense of Democracies. So let's get a sense of what their origins are by reading an article by a gentleman named John Judas in Slate uh, from 2015. Judas writes, quote, on April 24th, 2001, three major pro-Israel donors incorporated an organization called Emet, which is Hebrew for the truth. In an application to the Internal Revenue Service for tax-exempt status, president of the organization Clifford May explained that the group was, quote, going to provide education to enhance Israel's image in North America and the public's understanding of issues affecting Israeli-Arab relations, unquote. But in the wake of the September 11th attacks, May broadened the group's mission and changed its name to the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. As he explained in a supplemental to the IRS, the group's board of directors decided to focus on, quote, developing educational materials on the eradication of terrorism everywhere in the world. And so from their origins, they were obviously a pro-Israel group. They remain a pro-Israel group specifically of the kind of far right within Israel itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very aligned with the Likud party. But if they look like they're an pro-Israeli group, this sort of limits their scope of influence. So they named their organization Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And (laughs) for people who are Israeli propagandists, they believe that they're the only democracy in the Middle East. So what they mean by Foundation for Defense of Democracies is that they're defending Israel. Because apparently, I guess, democracies like Lebanon or even this semi-democracy in Iran or in Iraq – they don't really count, I guess. Those certainly do not count. They don't count. But Saudi Arabia is okay. Yeah, Saudi Arabia is fine. So there was something that happened recently in the news that really kind of tied this all together while we were working on the show. It incidentally happened. <laughs> the Foundation for Defense of Democracies was caught by activists on Twitter of partnering with and effectively working a social media propaganda campaign to demonize Iran and to attack pro-peace activists with the Trump State Department. So a little bit of a backgrounder here. We'll have it in the show notes, a piece I wrote for the nation back in the spring of 2017. In 2016, Congress codified this thing called the Global Engagement Center, which was supposedly created – well, originally it was created in 2015 to combat ISIS, but it had didn't have much money and it's unclear the scope of it. But then later it was expanded radically to, for a budget of $120 million over two years. That budget was then increased again a few months later, and that was supposed to combat Russian propaganda and Chinese propaganda. I warned at the time that this was going to be abused because in 2013, Congress repealed and Obama helped repeal the Smith-Munt Act, which was established in 1948 to prevent the government from propagandizing domestically on American citizens. There are always, of course, exceptions to this. The CIA uh, had been running domestic propaganda since then as well, but there were very explicit rules against the Defense Department and the State Department doing it. And then once those rules went away, when they created the GEC in 2017, 
I emailed the State Department and the Government Accountability Office, the organization in charge with regulating this, asking them if this was going to be used to propagandize Americans or to pay American journalists. They did not respond to that question. We now know why this revelation is the first revelation we've had that the GEC is being used to target Americans because many people on Twitter who were targeted were Americans. And this really does kind of show the influence of FDD. They're effectively running the Trump administration's Iran policy. You asked about whether or not a war is possible. Now, I don't know how much time we have. I would like to talk more about what that could mean. But the quick answer to it is, I don't think a war could be possible. It doesn't look likely because, specifically because, one, the Iranian government, regardless of what you think about it, and there is certainly a lot to criticize, but the Iranian people might have disagreements with some of the policies in terms of you know, labor rights, women's rights, theocracy. But if you look at polls, the vast majority of Iranians support their government's foreign policy and do not want their government overthrown. And if there were any operation, the vast majority of the population would unite in support of their government. And it's very different from Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which was still a criminal invasion. But the Iranian government is much more popular than the Iraqi government was, which was always for you don't have historic time to go into the historical context, but you know Saddam Hussein always ran it as a kind of small minority group of elites that were running the entire Iraqi government. Whereas, again, regardless of what you think about this, the character of the Iranian government, there was a popular revolution in 1979 that overthrew a colonial puppet regime and installed an independent sovereign government. And Iranians greatly value that government and greatly value that the independence of that government specifically. So there's that factor. And then there's the factor that even if the U.S. tried to, it would just be completely catastrophic. Because as I mentioned, even though they're not proxies of Iran, Iran has allies in the region, including the Iraqi government, including the Syrian government, including Lebanese Hezbollah, and including the Houthis in Yemen. So if the U.S. were to launch some kind of conventional war, it would become an international war that would not only draw in these other actors in the region, like we saw in Syria, but even worse on steroids, but even potentially actors outside of the Middle East like China and Russia, and we could have a global war in our hands. So the potential for this to spiral out of control into just a, a, a World War III is very real. And then there's simply the fact that Iran simply just has deterrence. They have a very powerful military. And one of the reasons I think the Trump administration is carrying out this aggressive policy, this blatantly illegal form of aggression, is because they're trying to pressure the Iranian government to spend more on its military and to do more missile tests and then use the fact that Iran is boosting its defense and deterrence as another excuse to justify the U.S. arms race. And it's a, it's a kind of perpetual cycle that is meant to bankrupt Iran because the illegal U.S. sanctions on Iran are already very much crippling the economy. Uh, Iran is, has, is really incapable now almost of exporting its oil, just like with Venezuela. This is suffocation of the Iranian economy. And 
they're all it's all leading to this policy of regime change that the Trump administration is trying to pursue. But because of the deterrence capability, the U.S. can't carry out regime change directly. So they're just trying to suffocate the entire country, just like they're doing with Venezuela. This is collective punishment of the entire Iranian civilian population. It's preventing Iran from importing medicine and other surgical equipment and medical goods, which is leading to mass death, preventable death of people, of civilians. It's also preventing Iran from importing some food products and other equipment and goods. And it's simply a kind of medieval siege in the 21st century. And this is the same tactic against, against Venezuela. If you can't invade, threaten, and impose economic warfare. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. These major new sanctions that uh, Donald Trump says he has uh, imposed or is in the process of imposing on Iran uh, to ramp up the pressure, um, according to a number of economies, or a number of economists, excuse me, uh, well, one specifically, Kalen Birch, a global economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit, that's The Economist magazine, uh, told CNBC's Squawk Box Europe on Monday, quote, we can safely say that Iran's revenue from oil has been cut by at least two-thirds, so they are in a very dangerous economic position. If Trump's sanctions are actually effective at at knocking the out the the not just the, the, the surface, you know, parts of the Iranian economy, but really kick out the underpinnings of the Ira- Iranian economy and throw it into the equivalent of a 1930s style economic depression. What will the consequences of that be? And do you think that that's actually what Trump is trying to do? And is that a very real possibility? Uh, I, I do think that that is the strategy, if we can even call it that. Um, uh, so if the sanctions actually succeed in what their intended goal is, well, success supposedly is Iran capitulates and accepts these 12 demands that Pompeo has issued, which essentially uh, equate to Iran completely changing its security posture and letting its guard down when it comes to its regional uh, challengers and foes. Uh, doing a 180 on, you know, the, the entire Islamic Republic as it's known. And while, you know, I'm sure that we would love to see, you know, some of those things happen or at least some accommodation being reached, uh, 
uh, it's not going to come through these sanctions. So if the sanctions succeed, which they are, th- these are very successful sanctions, if the goal is to make lives of ordinary Iranians miserable. Um, but if the idea is, which I, I think it is, is to galvanize Iranians to come out into the streets and put pressure on uh, the government and the regime, and that that pressure will then be translated into some behavior change or some uh, desire to capitulate on the Iranian government's part. What's really happening is the opposite, though, because there is not a uh, organized political movement uh, behind this, and really a lot of the organized, you know, civil society uh, inside of Iran has really been crippled by this. They are among the, you know, they're the canaries in the coal mine of this maximum pressure policy, uh, and so. Really, what we're seeing is Iranian civil society being devastated, you know, the middle class being devastated, uh, all of the levers that could actually put upward pressure on a government or on a regime have all been uh, dismantled by the United States sanctions. And so what you have instead is uh, a government that is becoming or, or will become increasingly radicalized and where the most hardline forces and the forces that benefit from a securitized environment and benefit from, you know, there's a, th- a threat of war, there needs to be a state of emergency. They're the ones that end up accumulating the power and it's at the expense of more vo- moderate voices and civil society voices. So. You know, one of the architects of these sanctions once asked me, um, or it was at a, at a panel, said, well, you know, would you support sanctions on uh, Nazi Germany? And the response is, well, we did put sanctions on Germany. That's part of the, the way that we got to the, the radical state that Adolf Hitler presided over. And there's no history of this approach actually working, and yet the wake-up call that should have been last week of the United States being 10 minutes away from launching military strikes that could have started World War III uh, apparently fell on deaf ears in the Trump administration, and they're going to stay the course and just continue with these sanctions. Consequences be damned. Well, I, I, I think you might have already answered my second question, but um, let, me, let me run through it anyway. Um, we should, you would think that Americans would have enough common sense and memory uh, to, to even recent memory, um, our sanctions against Cuba just caused people to become more loyal to Fidel. Our sanctions against Venezuela caused people to become more loyal to Hugo Chavez. Um, the Great Depression here in the United States, which you could argue was not exogenous, you know, it wasn't caused by some external force that we could point to, um, but there were forces that were blamed for the Great Depression, and probably rightly so, the big banks and, and Wall Street. Um, it didn't cause Americans to say, oh, I guess we just need to capitulate to the big banks in Wall Street. It pulled Americans together. Tough times. People tend to pull together during tough times. And World War II, during World War II, we had, you know, I mean, you, you couldn't buy butter, you couldn't buy milk, you couldn't buy meat without coupons, without rationing coupons. Um, it, 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 there were all kinds of limits. I mean, it was functionally sanctions. And did that cause people to say, ah, screw Roosevelt? No, they gave him four terms. I mean, what, when in the history of the world have sanctions ever been successful at doing anything other than strengthening your opponents? And when, Jamal, are these idiots who are running American foreign policy going to figure this out? I mean, even Kennedy made this mistake with Cuba. Well, and, and look at uh, Saddam and Iraq. Uh, we had yeah. sanctions, crippling sanctions there, and that didn't work in <laughs> in changing the you know Saddam's behavior or in preventing the United States from getting into the most devastating war of at least the last generation. So we, we've seen this playbook before, and I think that the answer to your question is, yeah, they know this. 
they know this isn't going to work. That's exactly the point. These are people in John Bolton and Mike Pompeo who are apparently running the show. Uh, Trump, I guess, you know, parachutes in and stops the military strikes last minute. But by and large, it seems like it's John Bolton and Mike Pompeo's world, and we're just living in it. And they believe that military action is necessary. They think that, you know, we, we need to get there and... What I, what I view is how, how they see this is that they see political obstacles to military action more than they see obstacles yeah. coming from the, from, from Iran. I, I agree. So, Jamal, forgive my interruption, but we, we just, we just have a, we just have about a minute and a half and, and, and it just occurred to me, the one area where sanctions actually are effective, and you're mentioning Iraq, Iraq is, the, is a great example, is if you actually intend you know, if your goal is to invade a country, destroy a country, bomb a country, ruin a country, um, then sanctions actually do work. They they weaken a country to the point where you might be able to then attack them. Um, is do you think that that you know, I think these guys are thinking that way that the goal of these sanctions in Iran is to weaken it enough that they won't have enough you know money and resources to run their military. Yeah, I do think so, and I think that even some of the folks who are coming at this from the lens of we need regime change so that we can have a democracy in Iran, which great. I would love to have a democracy in Iran, but you can't install a democracy. Uh, you have to grow a democracy. But I think even they, in reality, people like Mark Dubowitz from Foundation for Defense of Democracies and these, you know, Washington think tanks and lobbies that are essentially the de facto lobbies of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Israel, they don't want Iran to actually be a country that is ruled by its people and that actually has a say, an agency in what's happening in the region. They don't want that. And so the best way to do that is to weaken the country and then destroy it with a war. Uh, Iran is already in the midst of an economic war imposed by the United States. And it's just a matter of time until we get into the military course if, if something doesn't change. At the intersection of communication and foreign policy is where you sat yeah. or stood uh, or marched or whatever, yeah. for whatever yeah, word you yeah. want to use for a number of years. I find foreign policy intimidating, and I think a lot of people do. Um, it's not covered in quite the same way. When you come upon an issue, whether it's the Middle East or Russia or something else, there's so much history that precedes it that a newcomer to an issue who's a thoughtful American citizen, as I like to think I am, it feels difficult to get up to speed on something. And when people talk about it on the news, whether it's in the paper, on TV, unlike with other things, there's a lot of assumption of knowledge yeah. about what has transpired in the past and what the failures have been in any part of the world that's complex. It's also complex because there are no real rules. I don't really understand yeah. the rules of engagement are. How do you think about talking about foreign policy and international relations in a way that the public can understand? I actually think that this is a huge deficit in our national discourse. One of the most important elements is there's a question of, of agency. How much can the U.S. affect something that is happening? I remember talking to a journalist who I respected a lot who covered the White House and then went to London. He said he was in the White House and something would happen in the Middle East or anywhere around the world. It'd be like, sentence one, this happened. Sentence two, what does this mean for Obama? What's he going to do about it? Whereas when he moved to London, it was like, first paragraph, this happened. This is why it happened. This is what could happen. And then here are the options for the U.S. and other countries. We assume because we're American, that our president, this has gone out the window a little bit with Trump, but 
should fix everything around the world. And so part of what ends up happening is we cover foreign policy like kind of a scorecard. Where did you notch your wins? Uh, did you deliver the democracy in this country? Or did you take the nuclear weapon away from that person? And these are incredibly complex issues informed by historical forces. Sometimes the U.S. has a lot of capacity to get something done. Sometimes we don't. So the example of the Iran nuclear agreement, the, the argument we get is, and we had this agreement They'd roll back the Iranian nuclear program. They had to take out about two-thirds of their nuclear centrifuges. They had to ship out their nuclear stockpile. I don't want to go too in the weeds, but the, the critics would basically be like, why are they allowed to have any nuclear program? And that's like an easy argument to make in the U.S. And to answer that, I have to explain nuclear physics and the fact that they already know what the nuclear fuel cycle is, and so you can't erase nuclear knowledge. I'd have to talk about 1979 and the Iranian revolution and the Iranian psychology is such that they're not going to capitulate completely. And so we have to design this and, and that's not going to come up in the coverage, right? So to me, the, the biggest challenge is the American impulse for solution for agency. We have to do something is how coverage is framed. If something bad is happening in the world, that is bad for Obama or that is bad for Trump rather than there's something bad happening in the world. Let's figure out whether we can do anything about it, right? That's gotten us into trouble, right? Because that's how you end up in wars that, that you can't win. <laughs> because the expectation is, well, go fix this, uh, go remove this dictator, go stop this killing in another country. And it's almost always not that simple. You said something very interesting to me that's going to take us back to the speech writing yeah. in broad strokes. So you write a speech for the president. Maybe it's a 20-minute speech. Maybe it's a 45-minute speech. Yeah. Most speeches are not covered in full uh, yeah. by a cable network. Yeah. And even if it is, most Americans have other things that they're doing. Maybe they read an article about it, and there'll be some quotes from the speech or some lines on the evening news. When you're writing a speech, do you think about, I think you must, but yeah. confirm this for me. Yeah. Do you think about what those takeaway lines, the quotable lines, are going to be? And is that your point about foreign policy? That Because yeah. it's so complicated, you are not going to do justice to the issue for the public, given the reality that in the 40-minute speech that you've written, the background stuff is never going to make its way into an article or in a clip. And so that's why that's more difficult. Yeah. This changed even while I was in the White House. You know, by the end of the White House, if I wrote a speech, I had to know that, like, a lot of people were going to consume that speech on Twitter, um, literally bits and pieces. You also had the politicization of how all these issues are covered for a lot of reasons that you know, we don't have to get into all of them, but basically in part because news organizations shrunk and news organizations became more political focused, more DC focused. The way in which uh, an issue was covered, let's take you know, a hard issue like Syria, was not what is happening in Syria, who are these different forces fighting on the ground? It's John McCain and Lindsey Graham called Barack Obama the weakest president in history of the world. What's your response? Right. And that has nothing to do <laughs> with solving anything in Syria, right? But that's the prism through which all these things get consumed is – it's just another issue in the back and forth, who's right? Who's up, who's down. Who's up, who's down. So it's a combination of information not reaching people. The information that does reach people is usually in the who's up, who's down frame. And foreign policy just doesn't work that way. I mean, very few things work that way. But foreign policy certainly doesn't. And you see this with Trump, to give an example. He understands this in a weird way. So we have a huge problem with North Korea. They have nuclear weapons. They have missiles. They're reaching a capacity where they could reach the United States with a nuclear tip missile. He has this big summit with Kim Jong-un. The illusion from that is he did something big. He solved this problem. We're sitting here like a year later, almost exactly a year later, North Korea has built more nuclear weapons. They're still testing missiles. The problem has gotten worse. 
It wasn't solved? Well, I would bet you that at least his people think it was solved, right? So he's figured out that like yeah. the, <laughs> the shallowness, I guess, of how these issues are presented gives him an opportunity where he doesn't even have to solve the problem. His people think that the Mueller report doesn't say anything negative about the president. Yes. And, it, well, and this is a whole other thing, the way in which the right-wing media ecosystem works. But it affects foreign policy because what you're seeing now is on Iran, it's a classic example. He railed against the nuclear agreement like everybody else did because they thought that was good politics, call Obama weak. He pulled out of this agreement. And here we are a year after he pulled out of the agreement. And Iran has announced they're going to start building up their stockpile again. The problem's going to get worse. He approached the issue as an American domestic political issue, not as a foreign policy issue. Foreign policy issues, how do I have an agreement that achieves my objectives as best it can? He approached it as, how can I look like I'm tearing up Obama's deal? I'm being tough on Iran. Well, in the real world, when you do that, the Iranians say, well, (laughs) we're going to start rebuilding our nuclear program. So we're going to be dealing with the consequences. And and the problem with foreign policy is the consequences usually take additional time to, to come home to roost. He says the last time that Iran and the U.S. engaged in an overt military confrontation was in 1988 in an operation called Praying Mantis. A sea mine damaged a U.S. warship. The Americans retaliated by destroying parts of Iran's navy. Iran then didn't respond It was recovering from the horrific Iran-Iraq war, and its military was on its knees. But Iran in 2019 is much stronger than Iran in 1988. In fact, Iran is probably at one of the strongest points in its history when it gets to regional clout and influence. And the mindset of the supreme leader of Iran is that if you don't respond to pressure with pressure, you would invite more. And that's why I'm certain of the fact that if they are faced with a bloody nose operation against them, they would not be able to resist the urge of retaliating. Ali Vaya says the Iranian regime has sat on its hands over the past two years, ignoring provocations, careful not to give the US any reason to attack. But he says the Iranians are beginning to lose patience. I think it would be almost magical if we come out of the next year and a half that remains in President Trump's first term unscathed. Ali sees three plausible scenarios that could result in conflict. The first is if the US simply decides to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities. The second, perhaps more likely risk, is an inadvertent confrontation that could just happen based on misreading the other side. In fact, the tensions we've seen in the past few days has been mostly because the Iranians started to put missiles on some of their speedboats in the Persian Gulf, fearing that the U.S. was preparing to strike Iran. And this was interpreted by the Americans as an aggressive mood by Iran preparing to strike the U.S. first. And that's why the U.S. sent additional forces to the region. The third risk is that an incident is triggered by a group that Iran supports that drags in U.S. allies, even America itself. Ali Vaya says we're living in a very dangerous time. While no one wants war, accidents happen. 
This is very much a 1914 moment, similar to what happened in Europe, in which a single incident, assassination of Grand Duke Ferdinand by uh, a single individual, put the entire continent uh, in Europe on fire. And the risk is that uh, a single non-state actor could take an action, the entire region, or maybe even the world will pay a price for. I mean, that's um, a huge, it's a huge thing to say. I mean, you're talking about regional conflict starting in the Middle East that, that could emanate out across the world. Well, I don't want to sound too alarmist, but uh, the reality is you have a multi-layered situation in which there are too many actors and not just states like the United States, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Emirates and Israel, Turkey, Qatar. For example, Iran is Russia's partner in Syria. It is quite possible that a confrontation that starts between Iran and the U.S. or its allies would quickly pull in others as well. We've just heard clips today starting with Intercepted telling the story of the Gulf of Tonkin and the eerie similarities to the case being made against Iran today. Democracy Now! discussed the new sanctions being imposed on Iran and the seemingly permanent closure of the path to diplomacy. The Real News explained why Iran is pursuing further nuclear enrichment. Unauthorized Disclosure took a look at the neocons and theocrats running Trump's foreign policy. Citations Needed debunked the idea of neutral experts on Iran policy. People's Republic looked at some of Iran's internal politics. The Hartman Report explained why sanctions are ineffective at avoiding war, but very effective at helping to start one. Stay Tuned discussed how Trump sees his foreign policy through a domestic politics lens. And finally, we just heard The Inquiry exploring the possibility of a conflict with Iran spilling over and becoming a much larger war than we expect. Members this week will hear some additional material on the media's role in helping to take us to war just like they did with Iraq, and some more details on the effects of sanctions on the general population of a country, the people most affected. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, my name is Emily. I'm calling from Cleveland, and I really just wanted to comment on the um, the discussion at the end of the uh, Nationalist Christian uh, episode about the burnout that we're all feeling um, in, the, in the millions of us that are feeling that and the uh, kind of the head in the sand conversation, a, an activist that is 82 that I am privileged to be friends with gave me a piece of advice in 2017 that has stuck with me and been so helpful to me that I just wanted to share she, you know, we've all hold, been told, you know, this is a marathon, this is not a sprint. But when I was sharing with her, you know, and just kind of commiserating that I just, just emotionally cannot stand all of the horrific uh, atrocities and the shamefulness that is in the news every day. And she said, you don't have to to make a difference because my habits of ingesting news and they have been for years is to ingest it daily 
continuously because I felt that it was my duty to know what was going on the minute was going the minute that it was going on. But I've learned that for self preservation as an activist and as someone who needs to do this our whole I and mean, we all need to do this our whole lives. You know, after this new election, we're still gonna need to fight and just injustice is always gonna be around and a problem. I don't need to be ingesting things minute by minute and even day by day. So that's one of the reasons why I listen to this podcast and many others is that I um, have limited myself to ingesting um, certain um, curating my news to weekends and um, really, I would say, uh, rich news sources. So I'm getting a lot of content. So I'm still being um, informed. I would definitely say that I'm not burying my head in the sand. I still definitely know what's going on, but I am not ingesting things minute by minute. I am doing them deliberately and maybe once a week instead of constantly always having notifications going on. And I'm really using my efforts to organize and stay active and working to using my limited efforts to try and make a difference in my community. So anyway, I thought I would share that because I know a lot of people are struggling the same way that I am. And this is really hard. So if that's helpful to anyone, thought I'd share. Thanks so much for what you do. It's helpful to me. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So in response to not just the voicemail we just heard, but also past episodes, I have a couple of listener stories people wrote in rather than calling in. And so on the note of activist self-care and, uh, and maintaining our sanity through dark times, Pat wrote in and had a, just a little story to tell. So I'm just going to read uh, Pat's comment uh, directly. So Pat writes, getting old is mostly a huge drag, but there is one good aspect and that is perspective. In the early 80s, I was active in the anti-nuclear movement. You have no idea how hopeless that felt. Then I heard a priest in the cause speak, and he told about a first-grade class he had talked to. He asked them if they were worried about nuclear war, and most of the class raised their hands. Then a little girl raised her hand, and she said, I'm not afraid because my mommy and daddy are fighting for peace, and I think they're going to win. Well, guess what? She was right. The Berlin Wall, which had been up my entire life, fell in the late 80s. Obviously, discouraging things have been building back up over the past 30 years. I'm just here to say that things have looked utterly hopeless before, but people working on the side of justice and peace made a real difference. The main thing giving me hope now is the Sunrise Movement and seeing people like AOC and Mayor Pete getting elected and being heard. I think we're going to win. End quote. So that's Pat's story. And uh, I, I don't think I have anything to add to that. Well said, and thanks uh, so much for chiming in. And I, I have one other story, different topic. We did an episode recently on the problems with philanthropy, actually coming from multiple directions, but in particular, one of the episodes was about how 
philanthropy uh, directed at progressive causes actually has a tendency to hamper progressive causes in a variety of ways. I, I won't explain the whole thing because you should have heard the show or you should go back and listen. But a, a listener wrote in not wanting to call so that they can remain anonymous, saying that they had experienced this exact situation because uh, before marriage equality had passed, the uh, the the nonprofit organization that this person either worked for or volunteered with got plenty of funding, huge amounts of funding from uh, you know progressive philanthropists and 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 you know funds that uh, give money to nonprofits like that. And then after marriage equality passed, that money dried up, as if the problems that LGBTQ people face had ended. Okay, marriage, we got it done. And the only time that money flowed back in was not for LGBTQ issues in particular or, or funding uh, for those specific causes, but was to activate that group to work on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign. You know, maybe not directly for the campaign, but for get out the vote efforts and that sort of thing because this person is in a swing state and that's where they thought the money should go. And it was just a great example of how, look, it's it's not that money going to that cause for those reasons was bad. It's that the money dried up when the people with the purse strings felt like the major issues had been accomplished. If marriage equality has been accomplished, well, then we don't have to keep giving money to this group because whatever they're fighting for now is small fry by comparison. Of course, it's not small fry for the people on the ground living with the consequences of discriminatory policies or or just ongoing anti-trans uh, policies and you know bathroom bills that sort of thing uh, of course that's affecting people's lives every day but because we thought about gay equality as almost synonymous with marriage equality for a couple of decades that once it was accomplished a lot of people stopped seeing any problems to be solved and therefore the money disappeared so thanks to that person for writing in, obviously, great example of <laughs> the horrible system of trying to fix the world we have when it's wrapped up in capitalism and philanthropy and rich people getting to call the shots, even when they're relatively progressive, totally well-meaning rich people. That's the sort of thing that ends up happening just as a natural byproduct of the mindset of the people who have money. So huge thanks to Pat and Anonymous for uh, writing in with their thoughts, sharing their stories. If you would like to do the same, I know I, I hear from people who said, and Pat was one of them, said, I don't want to call in because I don't want to sound dumb or get stage fright or whatever. I, I'll say one thing, and members are going to be hearing more more details on this today, uh, so it's at the top of my mind. But I just want to say to everyone, I edit the voicemails. So the people you hear in the show who sound relatively you know, intelligent and with it, 
I make them sound smarter than they did when they called in, which is not to say that anyone sounds dumb. People who call into the show, uh, even when they get stage fright and have lots of uhs and ums and uh, whatever, they're fine. It's totally fine. No one actually sounds that dumb. But if you're worried about sounding dumb, you should worry even less because I clean up the voicemails. So don't worry about getting stage fright. You should call in, leave a voicemail with your thoughts. I will make you sound good. And so with that, I will just say once again that if you'd like to leave a comment or ask a question, you can leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. And just a quick reminder before I go from our sponsor, Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts in 14 languages and last only 10 to 15 minutes. So go to babbel.com or download the app select the language of your choice and try it for free that's babble b-a-b-b-e-l.com thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on apple podcasts and facebook to help others find the show for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far out outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.